pastor. But also, we didn't know that until we first met Cherie when she sang at our son's wedding in 1987 at the Tokyo Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, and so you, you put that together and say, wow. And, and then there's, uh, you know, Dave. Where did, where did Dave go? Yeah. And is it Charlene? Catherine. Dave rescued us, what, five years ago or something. We were stuck just coming out of Reno, not gambling, coming out of Reno. Okay. All right. I don't know how much Walt told you about me, but whatever he told you, it's not true, okay? <laughs> and, our, and our radiator busted, and we're there, and AAA says, well, we, you're in an area there. You don't want to break down in California, anywhere near Truckee. They can't get a truck to you. Dave, through contact with a mutual friend, Julie Seltzer, came and drove up there, and brought us back. We arranged for a tow truck later to come and... But, you know, it's great to be part of the family, isn't it? Part of the family of God. But there may be some people here who are not part of the family. Maybe you're visiting. Or maybe you're just at a point in your relationship that you're not feeling part of the family. This message is partly for you And it's partly for the people who are part of the family, but we focus on the family so much that we forget about the people who aren't part of the family. And I think that's kind of not what God wants us to do. That's not We're not here just to love each other, but our neighbor as ourselves, okay? So I don't know why you came this morning. I don't know if you're here out of habit. That's part of it, maybe, okay? But what we're really here for this morning is to be refilled so that we can be the body of Christ, so that he can live through us to do as he would do as he channels it through us. That's why you're here. Whether you know it or not, that's why you're here. Pray with me. Father God, fill us with your spirit anew. Lord, make us not just a family, make us a body, your body, to serve as you would serve. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your iPhones handy, back in the day we used to talk about Bibles, but nobody brings Bibles to church anymore, do they? I see, I see a dozen. All right, pray God. They're all held by older people. Just, just getting myself in trouble right off the bat, you know. Just, yeah, you can take it. Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five, beginning with verse seventeen. If I have a favorite gospel, it's Luke, because uh, I mean I know how great John is and and everything, but Luke wasn't one of the twelve. He was a physician, so he saw things that the others didn't see. And I, and I like that. Luke 5, 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from all over, every village in Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, they were sitting there 
And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Wouldn't you love to be in that room? Can you imagine being there in that room and Jesus is there and the, and the power is there that he's healing the sick? I would love to be there. I, I would love to have him touch me. And I feel pretty good, but if he touched me, then I could feel like he wanted me to feel. It would be, it would be amazing. The power of the Lord present for him to heal the sick. Do you believe in healing? Do you believe in miracles? I do too, now. But early in my ministry, I had a problem because my middle name is Thomas. It is. My middle name really is Thomas, and my wife says that I was well-named. Because I was skeptical. I would hear these mission stories, and they were always mission stories. They always happened somewhere else, far away. And I would hear these miraculous stories, and I would say, "Mm, you know, was it really just that way? Was it that miraculous? Well, God healed me. We were we lived in Hong Kong from 1979 to 1985, pastoring the English church there. And in 1983, I was asked to go do a field school of evangelism in Dumaguete in the Philippines, southern tip of Negros Island, just across from Mindanao. Was there for four weeks and had a wonderful time. Twenty-six pastors working with me, and every day I went with a different pastor to visit in the barrios, the villages surrounding Dumaguete. And the, the pastor would say, I'll, I'll pick you up on my motorcycle at 11 o'clock. And sure enough, right on time at 1.30. <laughs> it's Filipino time, baby. Okay? Every day, they, they would pick me up and we would go out and we would visit. We had some wonderful experiences. I loved going out. The, in these villages, the, the houses were up on stilts. There were animals underneath. And you climb up a ladder. There's no door. How do you announce yourself if there's no door? You stick your head in the opening and you call out, knocking, knocking. It's so simple. And so I always made them let me do that because I loved being a doorbell with an American accent. In four weeks of visitation, we never had one home that did not invite us in to share with them. Try that in Rockland. Not going to happen. So I, I climb up this one ladder and stick my head in the door, knocking, knocking, and this lady comes to the door and says, please, come in, come in. She says, come in to the back room. There's only two rooms. There's a living room and a bedroom. The kitchen is out in the clearing out in the, in the middle there. And she said, come in. My husband is sick. He's in bed. He has not been able to get out of his bed for over six months. So we went back and we visited, and uh, and, I, and I saw this man, and I, I noticed right away the bed. It's just rocking like this. <clears throat> so we visited for a while. They wanted to know about me. I wanted to know about them, told them about the meetings. Obviously, they were not going to be able to come to the meetings. So we visited for a while, and after about 20 minutes, I said, we... We need to get going, but it's been so lovely being with you. But I'd like to have a prayer with you before I go. It wasn't a prayer of healing. They didn't ask for a prayer for healing. It was a prayer of blessing. So I took my brother by the hand, and I started to pray. 
I prayed for our meetings. I prayed for their family. There were two daughters there besides mom that were standing down at the end of the bed. And I prayed for the family. And then I, uh, as, as we're praying, and we're like this, I, I said, Lord, my, my brother here just needs your blessing. He needs your blessing. He needs your strength. He needs your, your presence to be with him physically. And, and as I began to pray for him, I noticed that the, the trembling was less. I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I thought, well, I'm just, I'm going to kick it up a notch. I said, Lord, there were stories in the Bible about people with palsies and, and diseases that seemed very much like this, and, and you, you healed them. So, Lord, whatever you can do for this brother of mine, I ask that you would do it. And now you get to be Thomas. Because I'm telling you, I felt something. I felt something that I can't even describe to you. It wasn't an electrical current. I just felt something. I felt power. And I finished the prayer. And I looked down at my brother. And I said, you're better, aren't you? And he looked at me and he grinned. He said, no, I'm not better. I'm well. And he got out of the bed. He sat up on the edge of the bed. He stood up. He started going like this. And then he starts going like this. And I thought, what just happened? I look at his wife. She's got tears streaming down her face. The daughters have tears streaming down their face. My brother was crying. And I thought, well, I better get with it. I want to be part of this. So I started crying too. I'd never seen with my eyes anything like that before. The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. So I went back. Four days later, we finished the meetings. And and on Sunday, I was going to catch my plane. There's only one plane that comes into Dumaguete every day. So you don't want to miss it, okay? But it comes in the afternoon. So in the morning... We were having a final meeting with the with all the pastors, and I grabbed the pastor I was with that day, and I said, "Can you take me back to that house?" He said, "Sure." Hopped on the motorcycle, and we went out there. I climbed up the ladder, knocking. Guess who comes to the door? My brother. Do you know why I went back? Thomas was still alive. I wanted to know if that was an adrenaline rush or if we actually had a healing. He came to the door. He said, I'm so glad to see you. He said, I got a funny story to tell you. I said, good. I love funny stories. So he said, the next day I went out into the clearing where everybody's cooking. And I, and I went into the clearing and everybody all around the clearing, there's like 20 some different huts there. Everybody got up and went back to their houses and stayed there all day. Because they thought I had died and they were seeing my ghost. Since then, I know if God can bring healing through this doubting, cracked vessel, it wasn't me, it wasn't my prayer, that was clear. If God can do that through me, then we serve a God who can heal and he can use anybody. Since then, I started studying the anointing of, uh, in James chapter 5 and, and what that's all about. 
In Napa, we used to do anointing services. We'd have all the elders up front with oil, and we'd have people come forward to, to be anointed for whatever, whatever your need was. We had a family come one day, and they had a three-year-old daughter who had seizures every day. She'd had three seizures that morning before church started. We anointed her with oil. It's been eight years. She's never had another seizure. It doesn't happen all the time because the anointing is not about healing. It says in James 5 that the prayer of the righteous man, that's where I got hung up on it before. That's not me. Will bring, will bring about healing, but it doesn't stop there. It says that is the Lord will raise them up. If not today, the Lord will raise them up. And it doesn't even end there. It goes on and says, that is, their sins will be forgiven. Because if your sins are forgiven, you're healed. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Jesus is just trying to teach them about that. All right? Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat. And they tried to bring him into the house to lay him before Jesus. But it was crowded. The room was packed. It was five deep at the windows, seven deep at the door. You couldn't get anywhere. But there's a stairway outside. And somebody had the brainy idea, let's go up and rip the roof apart. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Love to be in that room. You're sitting there, you know, it's it's dark, and all of a sudden you see straw particles coming down. It it happened a lot when you were in there. There's critters run along the poles, and, and, and there's pieces of straw, but all of a sudden there's a straw storm, and there's a shaft of light, and you're looking up and saying, What's going on? And you see hands taking the tiles apart and making an opening. And then the shaft of light is blotted out because you see a stretcher and a man on the stretcher being lowered right in front of Jesus. Now, pretend that you are the one on the mat being lowered down into the room. Strange sensation, yes? What do you see? What do you see as you're laying on the mat coming into the presence of Jesus? What do you see? Scowling people? Yeah. Like you're in a, like, what are you doing? Okay. Yeah. Scowling face. What else do you see? Come on. You can murmur and grumble. You can also respond. <laughs> the people lowering him down. You look up and you see the hole in the roof and you wonder who's going to pay for that. But through the opening you see four faces. Friends who are holding your ropes so that you can be in the presence of Jesus. Wow. 
It says in verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith. Man on the stretcher didn't have the faith. We don't even know if he was a believer. But there were four friends who said, we know Jesus. And we want you to know Jesus. So we're going to lower you right in front of Jesus. And we're just going to hold your rope so that you can be right in front of Jesus. So he can do whatever he wants to do with you. Pretty cool, huh? Who's held your ropes? Who has held your ropes so that you could be in the presence of Jesus? You know, I I didn't grow up in Seventh-day Adventist Church. Okay, I didn't grow up, but that's beside the point. I didn't grow up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I grew up in the Church of God. It has its headquarters in Anderson, Indiana. I grew up in a little church just north of Seattle on Puget Sound, Edmonds, Washington. My father was an alcoholic. When I was five years old, on my fifth birthday, my dad greeted me at the door. We lived in a little house, one bedroom. Mother, father, sister, and myself shared one bedroom. I came out of the bedroom, and he said, you're five years old today. I said, yeah, I know. (laughs) Kind of been excited about that. He says, you're old enough now. You don't hug me anymore. We shake hands. My name is Raleigh. Don't call me Daddy anymore. You're big enough now. My name is Raleigh. You call me Raleigh. And then he said two things to me that I heard more times than I can count. I made two mistakes in my life. First, there was your sister, and then there was you. I hate kids, but I hate mine more than anybody else's. So I learned at an early age, just do whatever he tells you to do and stay out of his way. I wasn't an abused child physically, but I don't ever remember in my childhood years through the time I went away to college, I don't ever remember having a conversation with my father. He never saw me run track. He never saw me play baseball. He never saw me play football. He never heard me sing in the choir or play in the band. He didn't even see me graduate from high school. He just wasn't part of my life. But there were men in the church who gave me the the masculine affection that I needed, who took me to my sports award banquets, who took me to father-son retreats, who who took me home from choir practice and taught me to sing the love song I still love to sing to my wife, The Nearness of You. Okay? There were men in the church who who held my ropes. And during the years, it's another long, long story, but you know, I knew that I knew that God could never accept me. When I was 12 years old, I felt called to ministry, and I went to the altar to give my heart to God. And I knelt at the altar and a doctor in the church came and put his arm around me and said, your heavenly father is so pleased right now. As soon as he said heavenly father, I knew it's not going to happen. My father doesn't want me. My heavenly father knows me even more. He certainly doesn't want me. And I knelt at the altar and I cursed God because he wouldn't accept me. I went to the altar 
more than 20 times in the following years, trying to give my heart to God, never being accepted. I finally gave up, and I became my father. I became the alcoholic my father was. I became the heavy smoker my father was. I left anything to do with church. Went through a marriage that never had a chance. I never gave it a chance. Until I finally met a beautiful young woman who was a Seventh-day Adventist who met me on a Friday night at a dance where every good Adventist girl goes (laughs) and married a -a two-pack-a-day smoking alcoholic. Why was her family not excited? (laughs) They knew it. They, they, they figured it's not going to last, and it might not. It's only been 47 and a half years, so I, I don't know. She says it's day-to-day now. I'm on probation. But the men in the church, even in the time that I was drunk every night for two years, I used to sit on a bar stool and think I was supposed to be a preacher. You know, you've heard that your angels, if you go into the movie theater, your angels wait outside. Not true. It's not true. The angels go into the theaters. Actually, there's a lot of movies that they like there. <laughs> they also go into the bar because my angel was sitting on the bar stool next to me, reminding me that God still had a work for me to do. Okay? So... But the the men who had held my ropes, I never forgot that. Men in this church, men of Grace Point, you need to be on the lookout for young men who need you to hold their ropes that don't have that father figure in their life. All right. So that's the first question. Who has held your ropes? Now, let's switch stories. Let's go over to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, by the way, written by the same guy, okay, Dr. Luke, wrote it as well. We meet in in, at the tail end of Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is giving his brilliant message and, and is being stoned. We're introduced to a man named Saul who was there giving authority to what was being done holding the robes, not the ropes, but the robes of, of those who were participating. And then we go on, and, and, it, and it skips a chapter, and we go to Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He even went to the high priest and asked for letters of authority to take to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any in Damascus who were following the way, whether it was men or women, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Why Damascus? Damascus was a crossroads. Damascus was a place where all the world came together. Damascus was the San Francisco or the Los Angeles. I mean, everybody's coming together there. So the, if they didn't root out the followers of the way there, the message would go to the whole world. So Saul went there to find these people. And you know the story. He's on his way there, and he meets Jesus. 
who knocks him to the ground and blinds him. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is this? This is Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. You think you're persecuting my followers. You're persecuting me. I am the Lord, Jesus, and you are persecuting me. Now get up, get into town, I'll deal with you later. Okay? That's the Ray Revised Version. I always, I always preach from that, the WRV. It's, uh, it's not necessarily more accurate, but it's a lot more fun to read. Okay? So, to Damascus. For three days, it says in verse 9, he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. Also in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. I love this. I love this. I don't know if any of you have heard of Ken Miedema, a blind contemporary Christian musician. He's not, you don't hear him so much anymore. I met him in, in, in Los Angeles and he actually wrote a song for my wife for me, which was really fun. He writes a song about this, about Ananias. He says, Ananias sitting by the window praying, waiting for the break of day, sitting by the window praying, waiting to hear what the Lord might say. And the Lord calls out, Ananias, Yes, Lord. Got a job for you to do. Oh, good. I love it when you have a job for me to do. What is it? It's a prayer ministry job. Oh, that's my favorite. I love prayer. I'm a prayer warrior. What is it? I want you to go into town. I want you to go to Judas's house on Straight Street. You know exactly where that is. There's a man there I want you to pray for. In fact, I have sent him a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and pray for him so that he can receive his sight. Cool. How cool is that? Okay, uh, what's his name? His name is Saul. He's from Tarsus. Lord? Yeah. Can, can, can I say something? Of course. I love it when you talk to me. Lord, I don't, I don't know if you've gotten all the information on this guy. He, he's here to persecute your people. You know, like me, Lord. He's, he's done bad stuff everywhere. He's murdering people. Lord, he has come here. What is it he say? He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Like me, Lord. And the Lord says, Ananias? Yes? Can I say something to you? Yes? I didn't ask you to go and change him. I didn't ask you to go and straighten out his theology. I didn't ask you to go and do it. I just asked you to go and pray for him because I handpicked him. And I said, what? When, when someone like me is here, you handpicked him to do what? I handpicked him to do what I can't get you to do. He's going to take the message, the gospel, to the Gentiles. You know those people? You call them dogs. If you touch one, you are unclean. You can't even, you can't even go to the synagogue if you touch one of those dogs. Well, he's going to take the gospel to those dogs. Now, would you please just go and pray for him? I'll show him what he's going to have to do. 
So then Ananias, it says, verse 17, he went to the house, he went in, he goes to Saul, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul. (laughs) That's amazing. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who you saw on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you can be see again, so you can see again. And, anybody heard of Dr. Leslie Harding? Yeah. When I first went to PUC as a senior theology major, because I'd had four years of college before, I was a brand new member, just not even dry from the baptism, my very first class at PUC as a senior theology major is Daniel and Revelation from Leslie Harding. And I'm looking up Daniel and Revelation in the table of contents because I don't know where they are. Yeah. But he taught me that the word and is not just a conjunction. It's a breaking point for a further explanation many times. And that rather translating it and, you can say that is to say. He has sent me so that you may see again. That is to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. I love it. And Ken made him a song. He says, and something like scales fell from our eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Whoa. That was fast. I didn't see a series of Bible studies in there before he was baptized, did you? Huh. Yeah, I love being retired. (laughs) Because, folks, we do it wrong. Baptism and church membership are two completely different steps. When is somebody ready to be baptized? The moment I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I am ready to be baptized because that's a new birth. That's a new birth. Now, it's wonderful when it happens at the same time. But I'm just saying it doesn't have to happen at the same time. In Napa, I baptized a young lady and I told the congregation. I said, "She's, she's being baptized today, but she's not joining the church today. She's not ready for that. And the conference president is a member of my church in Napa. Okay? So don't worry about going and telling him. He already knows it. And he's retired now too. (laughs) We're ready to be baptized the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the beginning of learning The beginning. He got up and was baptized, took some food, regained his strength. Then it says Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Yeah, several days. Three years. Three years he spent there learning about Jesus and teaching about Jesus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And the ones who heard him were astonished and said, Isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? Yet Saul, over the three years, grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
And after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And that brings us to the second question. Who's in your basket? First I asked you who has held your ropes. Now I'm asking you who's in your basket. Because just as surely as God has given people to hold your ropes, so he has given you ropes to hold. Who's in your basket? Lord, you put a teenager in my basket. Do you know how well I understand teenagers today? Lord, why, why me? Why would you put a teenager in my basket? Why not give the teenager to the youth pastor? Why would you, why would, Lord says, I just want you to hold the ropes. But Lord, look at her. Look what she's wearing. Look what she's not wearing. (laughs) Lord looks. She's beautiful, isn't she? Lord. Lord. Smell that, Lord? That's not cigarette smoke. Mm Mm-mm. Lord goes, isn't she beautiful? Lord. What's going on here? I just want you to hold her ropes because I have hand-picked her. But Lord, I'm, I'm here. Why would you hand-pick her? Because she's going to do things that I can't get you to do. And I didn't ask you to change her. I didn't ask you to, to adorn her. I didn't ask you to correct her. I didn't ask you to teach her. I only asked you to give her a place right in front of me so that I can teach her whatever I want to teach her, so I can get her to do whatever I want her to do, could you just give her a safe place to learn about me? Grace Point, that's your only job. That's your only mission in Rockland, is to be a place where ropes are held, so that people who are not a part of this wonderful church family can know that you care about them and give them a safe place to learn about Jesus. Because that's our whole mission as a church. I don't know if you know it or not, but our church is going through some troubling times right now. And it's a little bit frustrating to this aging Adventist preacher. Been an Adventist preacher for 45 years. And I'm, and I'm fearful and I'm frustrated. Because as a church, we have one job. And that is to bring people into the presence of Jesus so that He can teach them what He wants to teach them. And you know, He might teach them something that is not exactly the way He taught you. Because they're unique, because there are different ages, there are different generations, there are different genders, there are different ethnicities. And we can be united without being everybody thinking the same. We have a job to do. And it's not to straighten out your thinking. It's not to straighten out your theology. Because we're not saved by our theology. 
I preached at Illinois camp meeting in, in July. And again, I love being retired because I told them that my calling is not to bring people to become Seventh-day Adventists. My calling as a minister of the gospel is to bring people into the presence of Jesus so that he can connect with them so closely that he will teach them everything he wants to teach them. And you know, if they're open to Jesus teaching them everything he wants to teach them, I just have an idea they're going to be okay. And God's church is, is bigger than any denomination. Now make no mistake, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, and God has called this church for a special and unique message in these times. But it is the everlasting gospel that is to be preached. And everything else, I told my church in Napa too, and Jim Pedersen was there when I said it, I've given up doctrines. Yeah, I, I just love to toy with people, you know. <laughs> I've given up doctrines because if all you have is the knowledge of a doctrine and you get the wording right, if that's all you've got, you've got nothing. Sabbath is not a doctrine. It's a relationship. It's a gift. It's a blessing. You're right, Cherie. What a blessing to have this day. I love Friday night in the wintertime because it comes earlier. And I, and I read several chapters of a book to, to my wife last night. And we, we have time to do that. What happens when I die is not a doctrine. It's a gift in the knowledge that my loved ones are safe. I don't have to worry about them. Who's in your basket? You better not have an empty basket. That's not a good sign. Who does God want you to hold ropes for? If you see somebody here this morning besides us that you don't know, you better get to know them before they get out the door. Because that's what you're here for. Because they need to be part of a family. Who's in your basket? And may I just say that perhaps, perhaps it could be even your pastor. Lord knows Walt is a basket case. <laughs> please, please tell him I said that, okay? Yeah, good. Please, I want him to know because I love, I love Walt. Seriously, pastoring is not always fun. It's not always easy. They need to hear your affirmation. What can you do for your pastor this month? Just tell him you love him. Wrap your arms around him and tell him you love him. That means more than anything else you can give him. But a trip to Hawaii is always nice. <laughs> Who's held your ropes? Who's in your basket? Please, church, please get your priorities straight. Your mission is to hold ropes so that people can be in the presence of Jesus so that he can teach them whatever he wants to teach them. Pray with me. Father God, remind us, remind us, O oh Lord, of what it is that you really want us to do. Help us to keep you and our relationship to you 
in the forefront of our minds. Lord, lest we forget, remind us of where we were and where we are. Remind us of the calling that you've given for us to be the ambassadors of righteousness, reconciling a world to you as you minister through us. Lord, bless this church, not just their building program, but their building lives program. May this be the work that you've given them to focus on in Jesus' name. Amen.